So we actually share the data of what happens when we run an experiment for six months. And we showed that the users that stay with us for six months are so different than most users on many, many attributes. So remember, you're introducing bias here. There are users that you think are new, but they're really older users. And so if you're accumulating stuff over a long period, like I'm computing revenue per user, that metric is much less reliable um, when you run an experiment for a long time. Remember to stay tuned for an exclusive Experiment Nation community offer from Ronnie for his upcoming course on Maven. Hey folks, it's Richard here from the Experiment Nation podcast. And I've got a very special guest here. It's Ronnie Kohavi. And uh, we've been trying to get back and forth um, multiple times. And he's managed to give us a little time on the slot here to discuss all things experimentation. Ronnie's got a background launching experiments uh, through Microsoft and Bing. Um, he was a vice president and technical follower at Airbnb. He was uh, heavily involved in Amazon's personalization and experimentation. And more recently, now he's a consultant and instructor and just spreading the word as a experimentation evangelist. So welcome to the show, Ronnie. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. Uh, very glad to have you here. Um, for those who don't know you as well in, in, in CRN experimentation, could you, yeah, we'll just go through some of the background sort of information, like what's your formal study? Where did you study? And uh, more importantly, how did you get involved in um, the experimentation game? Yeah, so uh, I did my PhD at Stanford uh, in machine learning, accuracy estimation, building decision trees, decision graphs, and the idea of assessing accuracy using something called the wrapper models. Um, one of my advisors, uh, Jerry Friedman, is very famous for having uh, written the card book, Classification and Regression Tree. So he got me into some statistics and uh you know, looking at the statistics versus the computer science side. Um, I, my main introduction to experiments actually started at a small startup that I worked here called Blue Martini Software, where we did some emails and wanted to understand the value of them. There was a sense that uh, the emails that our customers were sending out are generating too much money in the sense that it wasn't it was taking credit for purchases after an email, not necessarily because of the email. So that's when I first started to run some experiments. And it was kind of interesting that our customers didn't want to hear about it. Uh, they were just happy to attribute a lot of money to the email campaigns. Um, the real epiphany, I would say, happened when I started working at Amazon. Um, director of data mining and personalization had multiple teams. One of them uh, of course, was doing the classical personalization, but there was also the homepage optimization and WebLab. WebLab was the experimentation platform uh, at Amazon. And I think at some point I looked at the success rate and it was just humbling. Like I thought, you know, we're the best at doing all these recommendations and uh, everybody's familiar with, you know, the, the value of them for Amazon uh, people who bought X bought Y. We implemented this cool idea. People who search for X uh, bought Y and that improved search dramatically. But when I looked at the results that came from our controlled experiments or A-B tests in the system web lab, it was like, wow, we were failing more than 50% of the time. A very humbling. Uh, and and uh, you know nobody at the time was really discussing any of those things. So I, when I moved to Microsoft, um, and I had an opportunity to start a new team. They were asking me, what do you want to do? Um, I said, why don't we build an experimentation platform? Nobody's doing it here. Yeah. Um, and I have this amazing statistics. Over half the ideas that we tried in Amazon failed. And, you know, typical of a lot of people uh, at Microsoft, the response was, we have better program managers here. Um, I mean, people really thought that they were doing amazing job at planning and releasing, you know, these products every three years. Um, and there was sort of a denial that the rate could be this low. Well, you know, to cut to the chase, when we built the experimentation platform across most of Microsoft, the failure rate, meaning 
you start an experiment, you're trying to move some key metrics, the overall evaluation criterion, and it doesn't move or even moves negatively, that was about two thirds. So 60%, 60, 70% of the time, uh, ideas fail to move the needle. At Bing, which is a much more optimized domain, it was about 85%. So think about this, 85% of ideas that you try in a controlled experiment and A-B test aren't moving the needle that you want them to move. Um, and at Airbnb, uh, when I was in charge of search and uh, relevance, we were building machine learning models to optimize search. We were launching all these great models. 92% of the time, the experiments failed to move the metrics that we were trying to improve. So to me, uh, this is sort of one of the most amazing things about uh, trying to experiment is this humbling reality that most of our ideas just aren't as good as we think. So I've taken you through sort of the last few jobs uh, from Amazon to Microsoft. Microsoft, I was there for 14 years. Um, and then at the end of my tenure at Microsoft, the experimentation platform was like a company-wide platform used by all the major product groups from Bing, of course, but MSN, Office, Windows, Xbox, lots of groups using it. We were starting something like over 100 treatments every day. So very, very nice scale, uh, lots of automated scorecards, insights, very, very cool. That's that's um, that's huge. I mean, you've gone through like the um, 20 year span in about five minutes. <laughs> so we end the interview there. Um, no, just joking. Um, what what are what are some of the things that just just going back to Amazon because um, that's one of the early experiences. And look, I see in your bio that was 2003. Was it even called experimentation or CRO back twenty years ago? No, it was not. It was not. It was not called CRO. Certainly not CRO. I still think CRO is kind of a misnomer. Uh, if you think about what people are trying to do, I always emphasize that you have to come up with an OEC, an overall evaluation criterion, and conversion isn't it. It's it's too narrow of an assumption that you just want to optimize short-term conversion. So I'm not a fan of the name CRO. I think conversion is a piece of the larger equation, but you really want to optimize something longer term, look at, you know, customer success, happiness. Um, so you think about an Airbnb, for example, you can say, I want to just optimize conversions of a visitor mm -hmm. to making a booking. But if you really think about the long term, you want them to, book a listing where they're actually going to rate it high at the end. It's not enough to convert, but you want them to convert it to something that they'll be happy with. Um, and that makes the problem more interesting and more challenging. Um, so back to your question at Amazon, we called it web lab, yeah. sort of a laboratory for the web to try and experiment. And this, this was actually done. The team already existed when I joined. So Amazon was running experiments already. Um, we started to scale it and give it more of the scientific bend of, you know, how do we do this correctly? Uh, how are we able to increase the trust? I think, you know, one of the things that people don't realize, and I, I learned it uh, early on, was it's very easy to produce results from an A-B test, but, you know, something is wrong with it. You know, I'm famous for you know, sharing this idea that you should check for a sample ratio mismatch. Well, you know, when you have a sample ratio mismatch, meaning the design of the experiment, say you're designing for 50-50, ends up being off by even a small percentage. When you have a large number, that's very unlikely. And so there's a bug someplace. And so I think when we built a system at Microsoft and we were trying to build a system for, you know, high scale, we built a lot of these trust tests into the platform. Uh, something that didn't exist in the early days. When you say trust tests, you mean um, adding in uh, monitoring metrics? I, I, trust means that when the system tells you, here's your scorecard, mm -hmm. you should be able to believe it. Whereas if the system finds a sample ratio mismatch, it should say, don't trust these results because there is something wrong in how we ran this experiment. 
Um, and we found when we built these things, uh, you'll see in some of the early papers, the whole idea of an AA test, yep. right? Don't run an AB test, run A against A and see if the system really tells you if only 5% of the time that you have static results, right? If you're making mistakes like peaking or if you're misestimating the variance, which is commonly done. In fact, we did, we incorrectly estimated the variance of many ratio metrics when I worked at Amazon and we didn't know it. Later on, we understood through AA tests that um, things are more complicated. When you have a ratio, you have to use the delta method or bootstrapping in order to assess the variance. Um, and that to me is the key difference between an initial system that works okay most of the time and something that you can trust at high scale and allow people who are not necessarily the statistician experts to actually use and give them the scorecard at the end that they should trust if it passed all these trust tests. So the scorecard was an automated sort of um, number or ranking that would spit spit out at the end of the test, and would, would, the, would, the, would, the, would the person at the end would still have to um, do further checks and balances using either a, a data scientist or... No, so the idea is that you don't you don't need a data scientist if you are using sort of the standard experimentation platform as it's designed. If you're running a simple, you know, ABC yeah. test, um, we do the test for you. We check for SRMs, we do the AA tests, we look at your metrics and you know, run hundreds of AA tests to see that the p-values are uniform. That's a, a stronger test. Um, if all these tests have passed then when you get the result, we believe you should trust it. In fact, these tests are better than a data scientist in some sense yeah. because the data scientist may not realize that there are these flaws in the experiment. We put as much as many tests as we could into the system in an automated fashion. I think that made a huge difference. This is Romo Santiago from Experiment Nation. Every week we share interviews with and conference sessions by our favorite conversion rate optimizers from around the world. So if you like this video, smash that like button and consider subscribing. It helps us a bunch. Now back to the episode. At Amazon, um, you know, they. this is like 20 years ago. So was it like you had the, the experimentation team and they were doing all the testing or did you have it uh, democratized at, the sta uh, at, at a point where someone product or marketing could go and have an idea and run a test and they didn't have to have that technical experience. Was it, was it um, like that? So the, like that? the goal was to make it self-service. Mm. And Amazon, we never, when I was there, remember mm. this is 2003, uh, we were just starting. It was a small team. Uh, we were using our the web lab as a way to test our personalization, as a way yep. to build yep. some products. But it wasn't, a platform in the sense of what we built later on at Microsoft. At Microsoft, we really built a self-service platform that could be used by multiple teams, high level of trust. At Amazon, you still needed to have the people look at their results and validate things. And uh, I think we were naive in many ways, not realizing that some of our computations were incorrect. And just, just to ask about um, some of these errors there he looked looked in hindsight and not to put you on the spot but i'm sure we're all guilty of this of you know you're confident about this test being a winning test you've done your checks and balances you productionize it then like six months or 12 months later you're like oh that was wrong um our assumptions are wrong uh and we've we've already put it into the open um do we just leave it out there as a maybe a false positive, um, or do we just sort of um, <laughs> just sort of do we just sort of ignore it, or or, or do we reverse the the the? the no, no. So the, so, the, so the you have to realize when you build a new test. Let's say yep. you build yep. a sample ratio mismatch test. You can go back and look at all the prior experiments mm. and mm. see which ones have violated sample ratio mismatch. Yeah, and yep. you can. Tell the owners of the experiment, hey, these following three experiments are invalid. Um, and you can try to correct for the sample ratio. Sometimes you can you know, remove a bot or fix it and reanalyze. But yep. if yep. the experiment turns out to be uh, wrong, absolutely rerun it 
And we've done a lot of tests, even for a feature that seemed useful two years later in the new context, sometimes removing a feature is actually a very good thing. There's, I'll give you a famous, I'll give you a famous example. Um, the, and, and I remember Jeff, Jeff Bezos at the time was a big fan of these bottom of the page deals in Amazon. I mean, this was like, oh, you know, cheap razors. The, the sort of the funny statement was the prices are so low, they so low that mm. they fall to the bottom of the page. He loved it. He was telling the board. He interviewed at some, you know, news newspapers and periodicals about how this he loved this feature. Mm. Well, at some point, um, you know, me running data mining and personalization. We had some timing issues. We thought this was slowing the page too much. We removed it as a test. And it won. It was much better to remove that feature. <laughs> and um, how did you present this to the CEO of Amazon at the time? Did you have to kind of massage his ego a little bit and just sort of, um, you know? I, I think, you know, it depends on how borderline the result is. If, if the, we always laughed at the, the result of an experiment, you add something we call the J factor, which is how much Jeff liked it. If it was sort of <laughs> flat, if it was sort of flat, maybe slightly trending, but Jeff yeah. really liked it, we might launch. Mm. Uh, but in this case, it was a, it was very negative and kudos to Jeff. Uh, when you showed him real data, he, he went with it. And so we removed that feature. You can't see that feature anymore. Uh, just just going back to your statement about CIO having a very sort of um, you know what I mean like narrow it's, perspective, it's a narrow narrow name. Yeah. Yes. For our audiences, let's just say I'm running a SaaS company, and my uh, primary metric or OEC was number of accounts opened, and let's just say got to 95, 99% stat sig after six weeks of running. Um, cool, we launch it, but we find that maybe the lifetime value of the customer decreases from 12 months to six months. Um, would you say that in that case, that is an example of our OEC just based on, uh, well, our OEC is not really aligned with um, the overall business objective. It's aligned with a CRO objective where we, acutely found that a lot of people opened up accounts but in reality yeah they did but they're canceling after six months i mean uh, we'll take it we'll take a a simpler example um which is you're selling products you make some change you're increasing your conversion rate but the average order side size decreases right so you manage to improve conversion but the metric that you really care about, even in the short term, you went you know, a step further to lifetime value. Even in the short term, it's possible for conversion to increase, but the average order value decreases. And the question is, is revenue higher? Right? So yeah. I think that's a better metric. Um, yeah. And now the problem with revenue is that it's what's called high variance metric. You may not be able to detect statistically significant changes in revenue, which is why conversion is actually has some good properties, right? It's a Boolean that the user convert or not tends to have low variance. So what I like to do is I want to look at breaking down revenue into these two components, the uh, conversion rate or what we call the revenue indicator is zero one. Was that was the revenue positive or zero? Um, and the other one is a conditional revenue, which is for the people that purchased, what was the revenue? right? Or average order value for the people that actually purchased. Turns out if you build these two metrics, their product is revenue. It's kind of cool. So when you run a test, you might say, I'm going to try and improve conversion rate, but I want to make sure that the average order value or this revenue conditional metric is a guardrail. It cannot move down materially. Um, And just going back to what I said about uh, monitoring metrics, which I believe are guardrails as well uh, in your context. Um, let's just say we drove, um, you know, the OEC was correct for this product page. We drove a lot of revenue and conversions during this test, but we found that we inadvertently uh, cannibalized our other product. Um, would you always consider you know, um, and say this is a complimentary product, would you always 
add these um, as guardrail metrics or monitoring metrics um, to account for. Like, oh, absolutely. I think I'm, I'm going to say in this case, your OEC is wrong, right? Your OEC is too local. You said you're checking the OEC for a product. Your OEC should be revenue for the company. Um, And rather than uh, for a single product, there's an example um, that I show in class. There's an example that I take where that somebody presented at a conference where, you know, there's this page with a hero image and there's three slots below it. Um, And they took the middle slot, moved it to the left and increased clicks on that widget materially. Uh, you know, the, the slide says they increased clicks by 109%. Um, so um, it's a terrible OEC because what she did is she moved something from the middle of the page to the left where our scan pattern is usually go left and to the right. And you expect that. So the question should be, what happened to the widget that was on the left? And you're likely cannibalizing it, right? And so the OEC should take into account the increased clicks for your widget minus the decrease in clicks for this other widget, ideally times their downstream value, right? Maybe your widget actually has a lower value than this thing that was on the left. This is why it was designed to be on the left. So um, yeah, I think that the coming up with the right overall evaluation criterion is one of the toughest things when you onboard a new team and then as you learn more, you tend to iterate and rev it um, as, as you get more data. So at Bing, we used to have sort of a, an OEC that was for the year. And then yeah. near the beginning of the year, we had a team spun up that would summarize the learnings and suggest changes to that OEC for the next year based on the learnings. And I think that's a good cadence. You, you want to keep the OEC fixed for reasonable amount of time. You don't want to just you know, drive in random directions every two months. Uh, so you want to sort of have a six months to a year of stability, telling the teams what they need to optimize. And then coming up with that OEC is a tough challenge. Um, it's something that I'm going to have to do work on personally um, without going into too many details. But to be honest with you, it sounds like the OEC, it's, it's an easy thing to make an error on. And it's something that needs a lot of thought and input from both management and the experimentation teams and cannot be rushed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I mean, the OEC should reflect the company's strategy, its mission. Uh, what are we trying to do? But the hard thing about it, it's easy to say, you know, we want to make money in the long term, right? It's long term profit is a typical you know, simple way to for companies to decide what they want to do. How do you translate that into something that you can measure in a short time? You're running an experiment for two weeks. You need some metrics that are going to be measurable in two weeks that are predictive of this long-term goal. Uh, and so one of the things is to do some experiments that allow you to derive these metrics. I'll give you one great example from Bing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, of course, want people to you know, have more sessions on Bing and not churn. We suspected, this is our, you know, natural model that as we show more ads, um, we're degrading the customer experience, right? You know, this makes sense. Yep. Show too many ads. But we actually built a model by running an experiment for a long time where for some users, we displayed more ads and for some users, we displayed fewer ads. And we were able to get clear metrics on the increase in churn rates, uh, you know, several other metrics that were impacted by the fact that we had more ads on the page. And so we were able to translate our goal of, you know, reduce churn and do other things into sort of a more formal equation. And that led to coming up with a goal for the team, which is you need to generate higher revenue with a fixed amount of real estate, right? So we told them you're allowed to take this many pixels um, on average, so yeah. for one query, you can have a lot of ads. For another query, you can have zero ads. On average, this is the amount of real estate, vertical real estate that you're allowed to take. Uh, and that was a that was a very important part of coming up with an OEC that's useful.
just in developing OEC for big tech, you've got a lot of smart people working there, resources. I'm just trying to bring this back to, say, the more medium or small size website that's trying to develop their own OEC. I mean, would they follow the exact same principles, knowing that they can't have all the data points that you would have the luxury to and you know, I think Microsoft. much of the OEC comes from, you know, the main belief in a causal model of what will drive my long-term goals, right? So again, I said long-term, people say customer lifetime value. Yeah. Uh, the question is, how do you build that model? Now, whether you're a small business or a large business, the difference is probably going to be in how you can validate your causal model. Can you build a sophisticated one? What are the metrics that you should measure? But I think, you know, in a small business, the owners of the business may have a degree of belief that these metrics are the ones to improve because they will drive long-term customer value, right? And business lifetime value. Oh, just, just another thing to add to that. I know we've been very data-driven with um, numeracy and statistics and so forth, but was there ever, was there an added layer of, qualitative um data where like hey we could drive a ton of we could plaster the the screen full of ads but would it i think you kind of alluded to that but you know and we could increase the oec by this amount but would we we so remember we wouldn't it's it's unlikely that you would increase the oec if the oec is designed right right if you looked at revenue as your oec yes you could improve revenue a lot by plastering the page with ads. But if you're if you're understanding that too many ads are going to degrade the user experience, then your yeah, OEC so. will be revenue constrained to a certain amount of real estate. That's a much better OEC. Um, and, and just to let you know, I don't get any paid money for this, no affiliates, but I he, he documents it in the, um, the book here. So I don't, um, this is probably one of the, better books that I read on CRO. Uh, I think it's the first serious CRO book I read after doing the um, the CXL course. So it really helped me out, um, you know, when I got into the experimentation game, um, just to really have a... It's, have a by the way, it's an experimentation book. It's not a CRO book. <laughs> it has a large <laughs> chapter on... It has a large section on the OEC and it focuses on the fact that this is not just about conversions. I do think that's a... Yeah. Very, very important distinction. I mean, you could say the same about the name A-B tests. We use it. Um, it's a colloquial name that everybody uses. But I actually tell people, don't run an A-B test. Run an A-B-C test. Have throw two treatments out there because one of them might surprise you in how it's winning. Good good point. We're not, uh, we're not used car salespeople. We're professionals. <laughs> um. Just in regards to that, I, I did actually have, this is off the cuff, you have mentioned run, you know, ABN or ABC tests. What's your thoughts on running, like, say, four variants at the same time versus just doing, like, a serial AB test where you run it for a month for one treatment, get the get the data out of that, make any iterations if needs be, then run another test? Yeah, so my thought is, look, there's two factors when you run an A-B test. There's the development time, which is usually high. It takes time for engineers to build a feature, to QA to a level where you can release it to, you know, to the uh, production system. And then there's the runtime of the experiment. Um, I believe that when you look at the power calculations and everything, it's usually better to run two treatments and a control, so an ABC test or an ABCD test with three treatments, uh, it will lengthen the experiment runtime. So you, you're now you know fragmenting the traffic into not just yeah. two, but three or four. But because the development time is usually much smaller to do another variant, I don't know if I should um, you know, do three or five. I'll just do both three and five as two different treatments, mm-hmm. saying the number of recommendations are... You know, you have some option that is easy to throw out there as two variants. You may be surprised. And I've seen this over and over again. You don't want to come up with the best design of the idea to test, but you want to say, you want to ask the designer, hey, why don't you come up with two designs that 
from the development perspective, aren't going to be dramatically different. In fact, most of the code is going to be shared in the back end, yeah. but at least have some variety. Um, and you'll be surprised at how many times it's sort of the designer says, this is my number one choice. And just because you asked, this is number two and number two wins by say, by, you know, a large margin, right? It, okay, it happens sorry. often. And, you know, that's one of my messages is, you know, it's very hard to predict correctly whether an idea is going to work. Same thing is true about the design or, or some parameters that you're throwing off the cuff. Uh, you know, I want to make three recommendations versus four. Why did you pick three? Um, should I put this, the search box in the left or in the middle? Uh, there's an amazing example from Yahoo where they moved the search box and it was a huge winner. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so small changes could uh, make a big difference. And therefore, I usually prefer that people run ABC or ABCD. Now, once you get into three or four, yep. then there's a lot of fragmentation. Like I don't want you to run eight because that you will really have to extend the experiment runtime a lot. And you're better off running, you know, three uh, variants or four variants. One of them is the control, yep. learning from it and then iterating. So to me, the sweet spot, ABC, ABCD. Um, so the learning lesson is uh, speed is speed is off the essence, right? It's like it, yes, you learn a lot by iterating, right? So yeah. you want yeah. the experiments to run for you know two weeks, I think is or one week or two weeks. That's the ideal time for a development team. If you look at the the models of agile development, the typical cycle for agile development is two weeks, right? And so you want to align with that. Every two weeks we get data, we're able to adjust. Yeah. Right. Um, if you have to run the experiment for a couple of months, that's a long time. You do these as learning experiments to understand metrics. There will be some experiments that will have to run for a long time. Mm -hmm. Or if you're looking for small effects that you want to detect for something critical. But I think in most cases, you know, the ideal time for an experiment, in my opinion, is one to two weeks. Uh, well, that's not been the case in my instance. <laughs> we yeah, it depends a lot on the traffic. Uh, and if you're running on a small site, you may have to run for four weeks. But again, once you get over a month, you also start to get into issues of you know, seasonality, yeah. uh, cookies, the, the data starts to get less, less reliable if you run something for multiple months. Yeah, just to get back to you on that, uh, two questions, because um, I've talked to uh, people who are like, you know what, and I don't know if there's any hard data on this, but I get the logic of, you know, to, to run it for like one month uh, max as a heuristic, and then maybe thereafter, there's a certain, if you run it for like 60 days, maybe there's going to be some data pollution because of cookie deletion. And like you said, um, seasonality. Is there any hard data on running it for too long? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is data. And, you know, I can point you to a paper that we wrote back in 2016 called Pitfalls of Long-Term Online Controlled Experiments. Mm. So we actually share the data of what happens when we run an experiment for six months. And we showed that the users that stay with us for six months are so different than most users on many, many attributes. So remember, you're introducing bias here. There are users that you think are new, but they're really older users. And so if you're accumulating stuff over a long period, like I'm computing revenue per user, that metric is much less reliable um, over when you run an experiment for a long time. So there's a paper out there. Uh, you can go to exp-platform.com where we put all the papers from uh, my Microsoft days. Mm -hmm. And that's called the pitfalls of long-term online controlled experiments. Hard Thank data, you. lots of information. I'll, I'll jump on there as soon as I can. I've been running a few tests. Um, I won't go into details, uh, <laughs> but I've been running the test for a little bit longer than I should have. Um, There's that link in the chat, but I think the, the viewers won't see the chat, right? Um, they won't see it, but if their viewers can just Google exp-platform.com pitfalls of long-term, they'll be able to uh, get it. Cool, thanks. I'll just save that to my drive. Um, the other thing is... It, it, the reason why I've been doing it and maybe some other people have been doing it longer is just, just to get that, reach that stat sig because on smaller sites, um, like I'm running in Australia, um, we've got a, I've had to run it for like, you know, six, yeah, I mean, you have to do your power calculation and determine, 
for how long you're going to have to run it. I'm saying the, the sweet spot yeah. is, you know, multiple weeks, two, three, yeah. four. Uh, you get into trouble afterwards. So you may have to settle for uh, different metrics that are more sensitive. You may have to uh, apply mechanisms like, you know, Cupid. You know, it's a variance reduction technique that we came yeah. up with. Uh, that typically reduces your runtime by a factor of two. So if your experimentation platform supports Cupid and there are certain conditions like you have repeat users, then you may be able to cut the runtime by a factor of two. Another thing is um, just just regards to ABCD website, uh, sorry, variations. Um, I When I was new to um, experimentation, I did work with this agency where they would launch like three variants plus a control. And they would see what happens after like, you know, two, let's just say two weeks. And they would see that say two variants are running quite well against the control. They would actually switch off um, one of the two of the other variants just to allow more traffic to go into um, the winning variants. Uh, what's your thoughts on, on that and interrupting experiments? So it's risky. Um, and you know, it can be done. You have to do it carefully. I mean, this is done in like multi-arm bandit scenarios when, when you yeah. start with a lot of treatments and you prune them down in the context of classical control experiment. Um, if you want to kill an arm, like you, you say, you know, let me just yeah. remove that treatment. You have to be careful about what you do with those users. For example, you have to allocate them in equal amounts of the control and treatment. Right? I've seen people to do that incorrectly. Uh, you have to realize that those users are now contaminated. They have seen a variant, and now you're flipping a variant on them. And so from a raw statistical perspective, that's a no-no. But yeah. could it be done? Yes, we do it. It depends how visible it is to the user. If the feature is a back-end feature and they're unlikely to notice, then the contamination level is going to be low. And I'll say, sure, do it. Mm. Right? So everything has to be done in the context of these concerns about, are you doing it right? Are you splitting the users in the right proportions? You know, if you have an ABCD test and you kill D, make sure you split the users into ABC in the same ratios. Uh, and also when you do the analysis, I would segment them out to see if they don't look very different, right? That's a, when we talk about sanity and trust, that's one of the things that I would do is I would say, Okay, so now we've increased the power, we have more users, but let me just validate that these users don't look very different when I look at that segment separately. That's an easy test to do. Um, and you might find out that you know they look different enough that I'm actually gonna remove them from the analysis, um, even though I have slightly less power. That's a good point. I, I know you've mentioned this on previous podcasts. I think it's good for our listeners to know uh, to beat the drum, um, Twyman's law, something I've working on myself. Um, anything that looks too good is, is too good to be true, and I think it's uh, both an experimentation and life. Well, I'm I'm a fan of this, and again, if you uh, look at you know the the Twyman's, there's a deck on Twyman's law in this expplatform.com site uh, where I give a lot of examples, but it has saved us from making a lot of incorrect conclusions. So in the experiment, we've had experiments that just you know, this is going to make us a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Uh, there are experiments like that. You know, I opened the book in chapter one in my class with this example that made us a hundred million dollars, but it it is rare, and it has been validated and repeated. And you know, we tried to do everything we can to validate that the result is real. Most of the time, when you get a result that looks too good to be true, um, there's something wrong. And so we, before you celebrate. Make sure to spend more time, look at this from all the angles, do segmentation, do tests, uh, look at whether some metrics could have been logged in correctly. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'll give you a funny example. You know, there was one experiment where, you know, somebody logged revenue twice in certain scenarios. So it looked like, my God, you know, we have 30% more revenue in this variant. Well, duh. Um, yeah, th those things don't happen. You don't get a change to make 30% increase to revenue unless you're a really, really tiny website that has never been reviewed. Uh, once you get to a reasonable size, if you're able to get a few percentage points, improvement to your conversion or revenue or things like that, that's a huge win, right? 
when you get that thirty percent, call Twyman's law. Yeah, like no way. <laughs> You're saying this here, but I've seen people sell. You know, come use my agency, and I will increase your conversion by ten x. Maybe if you're a high growth startup, maybe. maybe. Yeah, it could be in the very early stages where you're, uh, but, but yeah, see at those scale, stages, scale if you're so bad and your conversion rate is so low, just use best practices, right? You don't need to experiment. Just, you know, look at why your conversion rate, look, most sites have conversion rates. I'll say in a wide range, about one to 5% on something yeah. reasonable. So if you're below 1%, take best practices. But if you're in the range of, you know, I'm 2%, I'm 3%, nobody's going to 10x that. <laughs> um, so I think the learning lesson is um, don't take things at face value. Um, have kind of pull, put your BS detector on and, um, yeah, like, Look at the numbers. Like maybe get someone else in your team to an- analyze them. Did you have that? Did you have an internal process to doing that? Like let's say whoever was involved in a test. Ideally, the system does that. It's the most objective. Yeah. It's easy to add more tests, and so ideally, this the more tests you can think of to validate the results, yeah. uh, you can add them. So I'll give you an, an example that we had a problem with uh, the reliability of some cookies in certain browsers. So if you used an older version of Internet Explorer 7, there was something that if you did wrong, the browser would lose your cookies. Uh, so we built a test for that. And you know that test, you know, once we spent the time to isolate the issue, that test existed. And if anybody did something that would trigger this bug, we would alert for them. And so you build it once and you don't have to worry about it anymore. By the way, you mentioned your uh, BS detector. Um, somebody, I just, Somebody asked me to say, what are my five uh, favorite books in relation to data mining? And one of them that I put out is calling bullshit. Uh, It's called The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. Uh, Really, really fun book. Uh, Lots of good lessons. I mean, I wish they'd used the term Twyman's Law, but uh, lots of good lessons there. So if if you look at my LinkedIn, there's just a couple of days ago I posted this. So our listeners, uh, just look at Ronnie's LinkedIn and um, I think it was it five books you put up there? Yeah, yeah. Five books oh, at yeah. uh, shepherd.com is the small startup that does these, you know, what are your best five books? Mm. Uh, really fun site. Mm. Um, another thing is, uh, and this will help um, listeners of our show who have a smaller site like, uh, like the one I work on. Um Thoughts, just general thoughts on A-B testing on low-traffic websites. I know, I think you commented on Johnny Longdon's post or something like that. I can't remember the details. Um, People can look at, at LinkedIn for my thoughts on that. Um, I'm, you can do a certain things when you have a low yep. amount of traffic. You can uh, use lower variance metrics. You can incorporate Cupid, which is, you know, as soon as you implement that, you typically gain uh, variance reduction mechanisms. So you, you'll need to run the experiment shorter um, and you can find surrogate metrics. But at some point, there's no magic. You know, in order for the theorems to work out, you, you, you need a certain number of users. You know, so to me, if you have less than I'm just throwing a number 50,000 yeah. users for most of the websites, just do best practices. You're not you don't have enough data for most I, to be able to test most ideas. Uh, once you get to 100,000 to 200,000 users, um, then you're good to go. Then you can run useful experimentation. Uh, and and that's, this is where all the, the statistics really work out nicely. Mm. Um, I get what you're saying. Would you say that, that that website that's just starting out or maybe they only got 50,000 visitors, would you also um, implement um, more qualitative type testing that uh, remote user testing, um, five second Look, tests, all, all these things, methods, not, nothing is going to be as sensitive as controlled experiments. We know scientifically this is the most sensitive mechanism. So if a controlled experiment can't detect a 10% change, no qualitative yeah. method is going to give you that. What you get from qualitative methods 
are interesting insights that you might say, this is a good idea to change, or this is a best practice. I will do it, but I'm not going to be able to run the A-B test reliably that will show me that I had a 5% or 6% improvement, or even a 10%. Now it depends on your uh, the key metrics that you care about. You may just not be able to detect them. Once you get about 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, again, depending on the metric, what you're looking for, then things start to work in your favor. And then you have the ability to detect small differences. Okay. I'm getting what you're saying. I mean, numbers don't lie. End of the day, um, you got the gold standard, which is the AB um, online control. I mean, there's a power formula, right? Just plug it in and say, and you may say, you know, I'm just trying to go for home runs. Uh, But if you're trying to go for a home run of improving something by 10%, they're rare. Right. It's 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 really rare. I mean, you you should be able to look at some best practices out there and say, let me just copy from Amazon because they ran all the A-B tests and I'm just going to use whatever they're doing because that's, you know, they've they've tested it and it's likely to work similarly for me. Um, When you start to diverge is when you have lots of users and then you can test it on your own and see if you want to diverge from the best practice. Okay, so those listeners who are launching the e-commerce website on Shopify, um, I'm guessing they're learning this, and as Amazon's had all the arrows in their back from years of experimentation, so just follow what they just follow what they do on their website, and um... it's a good basis to start. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, it's a yeah. good basis to start. Yeah, um, just in regards to that, uh, again, low traffic websites. Um, are you a ninety-five percent stat sig guy? Um, I am. I'm also, I will say this, I'm a two-tailed 95% confidence. You recently interviewed uh, Georgi. Uh, he's a fan of doing one-tail tests. Um, I, if you look at some of the recent papers like Intuition Busters from last year, um, people think that a 95% means that, you know, if you got 95% confidence interval, there's only a 5% chance you launched in error. That, that, yeah. that's B is, but it's not. You have to look at you know, the false positive risk, which you have to apply some prior probability. Again, if you're interested, uh, look at Intuition Buster's uh, paper from last year. But that's why I'm a fan of really doing the 95 two tail so that the positive tail is only two and a half percent. And so you really want to make sure that you can learn from it and believe that this is successful. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a uh, ninety to ninety five percent single tail, um, out of convenience. Yeah, so you're gonna have you're gonna have like forty percent errors if you work at a <laughs> at a company. Uh, I mean, I, I really look, look at that FPR table, uh, and if you're using p values of of you know zero point nine, especially if you're doing it one tail, your probability that when you get a stat sig result that it's gonna be false ends up being something like forty percent. That's huge, right? You're almost yeah. flipping a coin. Mm. Um, in regards to that, just, I know we've got to wrap up now, but, um, okay, I'm, so I'm the 90% guy and I'm willing to take on a little bit more risk, um, which I'm fine with. And I'm happy to, I know that the productionization of this test um, is not, so huge um and i'm happy to accept a few false positives um just out of practicality well are you willing to accept 40 percent of them being false positives (laughs) i I, I think that to me is that to me is the key point make sure you understand the statistics and this notion of false positive risk now it's possible if you're doing something like optimizing headlines who cares you can make 50 percent of the errors 50 percent of the time and you'll still be good but if you're trying to learn from the experiments, and when you have a success, you want to share it with the org as, look, this is a feature that we launched and it's really useful, then I believe you should use tighter confidence intervals or lower p-value thresholds um, because the learning to me is what drives, is what changes the direction for the organization. And so, again, it depends what you're using it for. If you're running a small experiments to just optimize some parameters, yeah, you can absolutely lower the or you know, increase your risk, use higher alpha values. But if you're trying to teach the org and use this 
loop of I have an idea, I'm trying, I'm going to pivot and learn from it and then change my roadmap based on the result, then I think you need to have higher confidence in the results. And therefore, as a default, I recommend you know 90, at least 95% two-tailed, which effectively means 97.5% on the Ooh. improvement tail. Okay, that might be a struggle for some people. Yeah. It's tough. Wow. Um, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. We got to wrap it up soon, but um, for listeners of this podcast, uh, I'd like to um, let you know that Ronnie is hosting his A-B testing um, live uh, course on the 12th of June. Is that correct? Can you give us some details about that? Yeah. So it's a, it's a live class, uh, five sessions, two hours each. Uh, it's a forcing function. You want to attend live. You're, you're going to force yourself to spend those five sessions uh, for two hours. If you miss one, that's okay. They're recorded. But the goal is to ask questions very interactive session lots of polls fun uh and so yeah the, the next class starts on june 12th uh on maven uh can you tell the listeners just in case they're listening on spotify what the what the code is yes oh i made a complicated code so the code is <laughs> exp yep for uh, nat for experiment nation then podc for podcast and then ab so exp nat pod cab okay awesome. and that will give you 500 off if you were staying for the whole 50 minutes with us awesome and um yeah it's a huge discount thank you very much um ronnie for your generosity um just just one thing is um just in case people have been sleeping under rocks or don't know who you are um, how can they reach out to you? How can they um, learn more about you and um, or contact you if needs be? LinkedIn yep. uh, is the best way to reach me. Awesome. Thank Thanks you for being much. on the show, Ronnie. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. Cool. Bye-bye.